We are glad to have um, Pastor Mary Lou here this morning. I'm just going to share a few things about her um, as she prepares to come. This is prepared by Pastor Dan, so hopefully it's all accurate. If not, we'll, we'll check in with him, huh? Um, Mary Lou Shea is a minister in the Church of the Nazarene um, with an academic background. She spent a decade on the faculty of Eastern Nazarene College and more recently worked as a researcher in residence at Boston University. Currently, she is a staff member at North Street Church of the Nazarene in Hingham, Massachusetts, which is, of course, where Greg Whitney lives. So that's your, your claim to fame right there. Her most recent book is entitled, In Need of Your Prayers and Patience, The Life and Ministry of Hiram F. Reynolds and the Founding of the Church of the Nazarene. So if you have any questions about the history of the founding of our church, she is the one to ask. No pressure there at all, huh? It is a delight to welcome uh, Mary Lou to our pulpit this morning while Pastor Dan and Pastor Gary are away at men's retreat. Let's welcome her this morning. Well, that was actually a much nicer introduction than some people have given me, so good job, Dan. And I do love Greg. I'm so glad he's at our church. Um, our next half hour is going to be spent in the book of Genesis, chapter 21, beginning at verse 8. This is the story of what happens when Isaac is a very little boy and Hagar and Ishmael have to be dealt with. And this is what it says in Genesis. The child grew and was weaned, this is Isaac, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch my boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. 
he had lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. And this is the word of the Lord. Now this story shows up just after we read about Sarah giving birth to Isaac, after a lifetime of shameful barrenness. She and her husband Abraham had been desperate for a child, a son, to carry on the family line and to bring them honor and to care for them in their even older age. And God had granted their persistent requests long after they had given up on ever being heard or answered. In the meanwhile, Abraham and Sarah had decided to fulfill God's promise to them on their own, a promise we first hear several chapters and many years earlier in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Then the Lord had called Abram to leave his homeland and his people and to travel to a new land which God would show him. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Somehow, through the long years of waiting, through the times when Abraham felt threatened by the tribes and nations he met as he wandered throughout the Middle East, he forgot God's promise. Or maybe he just didn't trust in it. I suppose I can understand that. Certainly there have been people and situations for which I have prayed and pleaded and begged and wept. I've gone back and back to the Lord for what seems like forever. And sometimes it has been years without receiving anything that felt even remotely like a response. God's silence was deafening. (coughs) Sorry, this isn't the plague, it's just allergies. I know God listens, but I sometimes feel as though I've been on hold for so long that somehow we've gotten disconnected. And I try to help God out by rolling up my sleeves and solving my own issues, even when he has promised to take care of me and those very issues. So I have to be careful about looking too far down my nose at Abraham when he reminds God a few chapters and a few decades after the original promise is made of his words. The Lord reminds Abraham at the beginning of chapter 15, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. To which Abraham replies, O sovereign Lord, What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. God assures Abraham, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. At any rate, Abraham had taken God at his word, sort of. He looked at Sarah, and she looked at him, and they both knew that ship had sailed. Abraham was an old man, and Sarah was no spring chicken herself. Thank you. She, at least, had left childbearing years behind. So they adapted God's promise to fit the circumstances they found themselves in. Without consulting Hagar, 
an Egyptian woman who served as one of Sarah's slaves, the married couple decided to use Hagar as a surrogate mother. Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to use as a sexual partner in the hopes that he could get her pregnant and that the child would be a boy. That way, God's promise could be fulfilled. Remember, the Lord had promised only that the long-prayed-for son would be Abraham's. He hadn't said anything about the baby being of Sarah's body. So Hagar seemed a logical choice, one trying to interpret God's seemingly cryptic assurance in light of the realities of the situation. Hagar, as a slave, had no standing as a person in society of that time. She was Sarah's possession to do with as she wished. Hagar was, in a sense, an extension of Sarah, like Sarah's hairbrush or Sarah's left arm. Hagar had no choice in the matter. She was simply given to Abraham to use as he would use any other of his wife's possessions. Because Hagar was, in fact, part of Sarah's, any child she produced would be considered Abraham's legitimate son. Chapter 16 tells the story of Sarah's decision to send the Egyptian slave Hagar to Abraham to use as a receptacle for his longed-for heir. As you might expect, once Hagar fell pregnant, quite likely against her will, she began, in the words of Scripture, to despise her mistress. Even if both Sarah and Abraham had been kind to her, and she fully understood the part she was being compelled to play in preserving all of Abraham's extended family, it was a hard truth that she was being used as a vessel with no right to determine the use of her own body, and presumably no right to determine the future of the child she was carrying. Even though Sarah longed for a child, and even though it was she who suggested Hagar as a surrogate, the pain of her own inability, combined with the envy she felt over Hagar's fruitfulness and the favor that had won her in Abraham's eyes, was too much to bear. Sarah accused Abraham of putting Hagar in the position of despising her childless mistress and causing Sarah humiliation and distress. Abraham, not wanting to be caught in the middle between two angry women, left it to Sarah to deal with Hagar. Many people read these verses to suggest that Hagar was strutting around, purposefully lording over Sarah, that she, Hagar, had managed to get pregnant by Abraham when his beloved wife just wasn't woman enough to provide the child he needed. I suppose that might be true. But when I read these verses, I hear something else. I hear Sarah expressing the perhaps unexpected pain of a woman who now has to live with her own childlessness in new, more obvious ways. She was responsible for Hagar's pregnancy every bit as much as Abraham was, for it was she who concocted the plan and shoved Hagar into Abraham's arms. Now she's watching a young woman, a slave, and most likely an unwilling participant in Sarah's plan, who probably shows no real joy over her pregnancy, visibly growing rounder and rounder. Both women are caught up in an unhappy situation that is all the more difficult because it is supposed to be a time of great joy. The long-awaited and long-promised child is on the way, and Sarah's jealousy is eating her alive 
and Hagar is resentful at having been used as a broodmare. She has not been elevated to the status of wife. She's not even been lifted out of slavery. She is still only a healthy young body. Only the child. Sarah's child, according to the law and custom of the day, matters. Sarah, when given leave to deal with whatever it was that the Bible labels as Hagar despising her, opts to mistreat Hagar. Again, we don't know exactly what that means, but it is certain that Sarah would never do anything to risk the family's future, the baby's life. Too much hangs in the balance for the whole extended family, and she's already sacrificed too much for this child. So I expect that the mistreatment is something like verbal abuse and humiliation, the assigning of the most unpleasant or degrading tasks, that sort of thing. Hagar reaches her limit. She has been handed over to an old man and used until she got pregnant. Now the man's wife, who has absolute control over Hagar's life, is abusive and jealous. Hagar flees. I can't say I blame her. But she doesn't get far. An angel of God meets her out on the road as she refreshes herself at a spring, and he commands her to return to Sarah and submit to her. That must have been a bitter pill to swallow. The angel softens the blow by announcing that the Lord is making the same promise to her son as the one he made to Abraham all those years ago, and which will be fulfilled through Isaac, saying, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. It is God who suggests the name Ishmael, which means God hears. A statement of fact for God is already responding to Hagar, and she is only just struck out in search of a new future and a promise for days to come. And it is in those days that we pick up today's story. Now, Abraham had received confirmation from God in the days just before the visitors show up at the great trees of Mamre to announce Sarah's pregnancy, that Ishmael, then a youth of 14, would be blessed fruitful, the father of 12 rulers, and the progenitor of a great nation. This is Ishmael. So perhaps Abraham is not quite as concerned as he would otherwise have been when Isaac gets to be around two or three years old and Sarah begins to plan a great celebration of Isaac's transition from being a baby to a little boy. Life is good for Abraham. He is now miraculously the father of two strong, healthy sons, each of whom will inherit blessing and power. But Sarah is uneasy. Her baby, Isaac, has survived the perils of infancy in the harsh and unforgiving environment of the Middle East. He's recovered from many of the childhood illnesses that continue to claim too many lives even today. He has avoided a violent death at the jaws of wild animals. Sarah wants to celebrate and the community wants to rejoice with her. But a shadow hangs over Sarah's joy. Abraham pays too much attention, feels too much affection for Ishmael, the son who was greeted as the fulfillment of God's promise and the salvation of the family, but who was set aside in favor of his younger half-brother, Isaac. Ishmael poses a threat to Isaac in Sarah's estimation. 
she waited 90 years for her boy, her only beloved special boy, the one through whom all the peoples of the earth are to be blessed. But Isaac has an older brother, a legitimate heir of Abraham's. The questions must have eaten at Sarah. What if Ishmael, who is already a teenager to Isaac's toddler, decides to claim his inheritance and he seizes that which is, by right of law and custom, his to take? What if he hopes to clear the way by harming Isaac, or worse? What if Abraham's concerns for his older son cause him to defend Ishmael's claim, dividing or even eliminating Isaac's right of inheritance? I can feel the panic growing in Sarah, and I can't really condemn her. Ishmael is a threat to her Isaac, if we look at it through purely human eyes. We all know a family is split over the family inheritance when it is something as insignificant as grandma's jewelry. Imagine the strife when the inheritance is all that Abraham has amassed over a hundred years, including God's promise. Sarah is beside herself. She speaks sharply to her husband, demanding that that slave woman and her son be gotten rid of by Abraham, so that that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Sarah cannot even bring herself to call Hagar and Ishmael by name. These two, formerly the salvation of her family, do not even merit the courtesy of names anymore. They're too dangerous, and Abraham must be brought to the point where he sees them not as family, perhaps precious family, but as dangerous, divisive, and potentially deadly to the welfare of the larger family and the future God has promised. The scripture, in many English translations, including this morning's, describes Ishmael as mocking Isaac while the celebration is in full swing. This is, it turns out, a somewhat unfortunate translation because it leads us to think poorly of Ishmael and, by extension, of the mother who probably encouraged him to be unkind to his baby brother. The word often translated as mocking is, in fact, the same word used to name that baby brother, a word we translate as laughter when naming Isaac. So Ishmael is laughing or causing laughter, but with no apparent evil intent. The Hebrew word has no malicious connotation. Maybe Ishmael's being a good big brother, entertaining Isaac, while the grown-ups do what they usually do at parties, eat, drink, catch up on family news, talk about the flocks and the herds, make certain that the platters are always full for folks to snag seconds. And as described in one country song, the old men and sit and talk about the weather. The old women sit and talk about old men. Isaac, who is two or three years old, is probably quickly bored or overwhelmed by the celebrations that, in fact, do little to entertain him. So Ishmael may have taken it upon himself to keep Isaac amused. Or because he is the son of a slave, maybe Ishmael is ordered to keep Isaac out from underfoot and in good spirits. Or Possibly Ishmael is being a typical teenager and is goofing around, drawing unnecessary attention to himself and thus away from Isaac. 
At any event, Sarah chose to be offended and may have seen Ishmael's actions, whatever the motivation, as an attempt to make her son look insignificant, even laughable, when compared to his big, strong brother. Now, Abraham, to his credit, is distressed, according to the scripture, by Sarah's demand and probably by the behavior surrounding it, for such a request was probably made somewhat shrilly and perhaps with an earshot of their guests. And to act on it at once, as Sarah would have liked, would most assuredly have caused a scene that would have been gossiped about for many years to come. Nevertheless, Abraham complies once God has assured him that neither the boy nor the slave would be abandoned by God, for God has blessed Ishmael because he is Abraham's offspring. God is aware of the situation in which they find themselves. Something akin to out of the frying pan and into the fire, as they're sent from a hostile home into the even more desolate wilderness. And God is kind enough to be concerned for them. Sarah could easily be condemned for this behavior, but let's not, even if we can muster no sympathy for her less than fine feelings. She is, after all, supported by her demand, in her demand, by God. <laughs> Although probably not because she's clothed in righteousness at that precise moment. She is, however, advancing God's agenda, which calls for the two boys to grow into the leadership of two different communities, an impossibility if they stay together. So early the next morning, after a late night of feasting and drinking, and probably singing and dancing and games and tall tales, while everyone is sleeping off the excesses of celebration, Abraham sends Agar, Hagar and Ishmael away, providing them with some food and a skin of water, but no mention of blessing, no comment about a kiss of farewell, just a shove in the direction of anywhere but here. Perhaps stunned, perhaps only resigned, most likely exhausted, probably fearful about how she's going to provide for herself and her son in a parched territory full of wild animals and wilder tribes. Hagar shoulders both their provisions and her responsibility and trudges into the pre-dawn light of an unknown future. <clears throat> the day is hot, the walk dusty, the destination unknown. There is no real plan that first day, except to get as far away from Abraham and his people as their feet can carry them. They aren't burdened by many possessions, since slaves don't own anything, and Abraham apparently had not gifted his son with anything beyond a sack of food and a skin of water. <coughs> and those gifts, as precious as they are in a largely barren land, do not last long, even with care. The water can't last as the two of them set out into a Middle Eastern day. And the food, what there is of it, would be needed to provide the nourishment, the calories, to keep going. So the moment of reckoning comes far too soon. Hagar and Ishmael are in the desert and out of options. Hagar leaves her son under a bush and goes to sit a distance away from him. She knows he is going to die, and she cannot bear to watch the light flicker out in his eyes. He's so dehydrated that apparently he can't even argue with her or follow her when she moves away from him. I suspect that he left most of the water for his mom, giving her enough energy to be aware 
of her son's slow death. The desert is about to claim more victims. What a thriving family. Ishmael's thriving family is settling back into the routines of daily life after their holiday. They are enjoying yogurt and olives and dates and fresh bread and fresh life-giving water just a few days walk away while Hagar and Ishmael perish under an unforgiving desert sun. Hagar sits watching, close enough to chase off any opportunistic animals that think Ishmael looks a tasty treat, replaying the last many years in her mind. What could she have done differently to protect her son against this day and this death? How could Abraham have abandoned his firstborn son so easily? Where was this God after whom she had named her beloved boy? the God who hears. And defeated, and hoping to outlive her son just long enough to protect him from scavengers, she begins to sob over all the hurts and humiliations she has endured, over all the lost hopes she had harbored for her son, over the dreadful waste of his death. Back under the bush, it seems as though Ishmael is crying too, perhaps over those very same things. And God hears. The angel of God speaks to Hagar, calling her by name. She is not just some nobody slave woman to God. She is his daughter, Hagar. She has endured much and has survived and has been obedient to his commands, even when it cost her her dignity and her freedom, even when she was not guilty of anything. Hagar has suffered in big ways and small, for most of her life. She was a foreigner, a slave woman, the probably unwilling surrogate mother for her owner's son, who had, in spite of everything, come to love that boy for all she was worth. And now, after having played by the rules, even when the deck was stacked against her, they're going to die in the desert, abandoned, unmourned, unloved and probably unburied, to be scavenged by hungry animals. <coughs> and then the message of God is delivered to her by an angelic voice. Do not be afraid. God has heard. What wonderful words. Imagine Hagar's joy and her sons at the sound of that voice, at the message of those words. I wonder if they thought they were hallucinating or if they wanted so badly for it to be true that it was an imagined comfort just as they breathed their last. Has that ever happened in your life? Are we sitting in a room full of Hagar's and Ishmael's with people for whom every possible thing has gone wrong in spite of their obedience, their faithfulness, People who've done nothing to deserve the hand life has dealt them and who have tried to make the best of it but who still end up with a losing hand? Have you ever wondered if God is truly listening? If he truly cares about your troubles when he has the whole world to oversee? 
Have you ever been taken by surprise when out of a clear blue sky, the thunderbolt of his voice has struck you and you've gotten the answer you needed? Even if it wasn't the one you expected or had asked for? I suspect that many of us, or maybe all of us, can find those moments in our own lives if we look back. Of course, some of us may not need to look back. We might be sitting in the desert waiting to die right this very minute. Sitting in our pews, looking all Sunday best on the outside, but absolutely parched for God's living water on the inside. It's happened to me. And just when I was at the end of my tether, God heard. God knew. And he answered. Maybe in a surprising way out in left field sort of way, at least from my perspective. But he answered. I haven't always been best pleased with God's response because I have known exactly what I wanted or needed and God offers something different. Yet in the long run, his choice has always brought life, joy, grace, mercy, peace, love. Sometimes these gifts came slowly and one at a time, but they only came at all because God heard and responded. Hagar has this same experience. The God who had heard her all those years ago when she was pregnant and fleeing is the same God who hears her and her son now. He repeats his promise, the promise that gave her courage and hope so long ago, not only to protect Ishmael's life, but to make of him a great nation. It will be a separate path from the one laid out by God for Isaac, but it will not be a lesser path. Hagar hears God. His words are words of life, words of promise, words of mercy and grace. And in that moment, the lowest ebb of her whole life of slavery and abasement, God opens her eyes to the possibilities and to his provision. From her little seat on the desert floor, she spots a well of water. The text is careful not to say that God made a well of water start bubbling up through the sand. What it says is, God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. It was right there all along. But in her grief, anger, humiliation, exhaustion, and despair, Hagar could not see the way that God had made for them. <laughs> Boy, how many times has God had to open my eyes before I could see the blessing right in front of me? I think I stopped counting. How often have I been so caught up in my own worries, my own troubles, my own sufferings, my own agenda, that I could not see that God was already providing, had already heard and answered? How many times have I badgered God to answer me when I was tripping over his gracious reply? How many times has that happened to you? Is it happening right now? Is there a trouble in your life that simply won't give you peace? If so, remember that God hears and God answers. Not always in the way we expect. So keep a sharp eye and a tuned ear because the answer might otherwise slip by unrecognized.
Hagar knows just what to do when she sees God's answer in front of her red-rimmed eyes. She gets up, fills the empty water skin, and scrambles as fast as she can over the shifting desert sands and pebbles, back to that bush and her boy, Ishmael. She helps him to drink deep of the life-giving water of God's grace and provision. The scripture says, God was with the boy as he grew up. Can you imagine a better gift than that? Can you imagine a richer inheritance than that? It seemed that all had been lost when Sarah's vicious defense of her son's rights as heir had caused Hagar and Ishmael to be banished into the wilderness. Yet God is with Ishmael, just as he is with Isaac. He makes Ishmael the father of nations, just as he does Isaac. God blesses Ishmael, just as he does Isaac. So maybe Ishmael didn't lose out after all, and maybe Isaac didn't win out over his brother. Neither one has a perfect life, free of discord or disaster, but both flourish, each in the way and in the place that God had intended. One last thing. It's so small a detail that I suspect many of us overlook it. I know I have, and I've read this scripture many times. Ishmael and his mother continue to live in the wilderness, in the desert of Paran. That is... They aren't rescued from their situation. They're rescued in their situation. God does not direct them to a flourishing village or a lush oasis or to one of the big cities of the day or even back to Abraham and Sarah with the assurance that he, God, would give the patriarchal couple a stern talking to. He leaves them in the desert. They have to learn to cope with their new life. Ishmael becomes an archer, which is a secure way to earn a living and put food on the table in a part of the world where farming, for example, just isn't going to work. Hagar is able to find a wife for Ishmael, an Egyptian who shares her own heritage and whose ways are probably familiar to Ishmael as a result. Life would not have appeared to change much for this mother and son if one were to look from the outside. Their God does not pluck them from the desert. He does not shower them with gold and jewels. He does not give them the satisfaction of revenge on fearful, jealous Sarah. He does not allow Isaac, the unwitting cause of their distress, to fail. So not much of a God from a worldly perspective, but he does provide for Hagar and Ishmael. They are able to build a successful lives for themselves right where they are. They rejoice in God's companionship and it would seem, do not ask for anything more than work to do, food and water to survive, and the chance to build their own family through a successful marriage to a girl from back home. It doesn't seem like much, does it? Unless you've spent time being harassed, belittled, mistreated, abandoned by family, hopeless and near death, then it means a lot to have a God who hears. That God is our God. He works with what he has, with what we're willing to give him. Can it be messy? Yes. Complicated? Sure. Less than ideal? You bet. 
But God can take any of our messes, any of our complications, any of our far from perfect, and turn it into something extraordinary, even if it looks pretty darn ordinary from the outside looking in. Keep praying. Keep watching and waiting. Keep crying out. Let God open your eyes to his provision. Just don't give up, because our God hears, and he answers when we need him most. As we go out into the world, I would like to send us with this blessing. It's a slightly altered version of Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. Let us continually ask God to fill us with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that we may live lives worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that we might have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom, praise God, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Go out into the dark and dying desert all around us, trusting in the God who hears and gladly sharing his story. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Go in peace.